Um, but you know, I'm actually really excited about this four-part series, um, The Vantide Returning Home. Um, it's been something that um, God's been showing me, has been meditating on Scripture um, for quite a while now. And, um, and I'm really excited about it because I think this gives us a, a fresh lens of which to understand what God is doing in the Bible and what God is doing in our lives and throughout the world. I believe that when we understand what God is doing, um, not only in Scripture, but also around us, it helps us make sense of all the stuff that we see in Scripture, all this, like, Eden, who, what is Israel, who is Christ in all this? It helps us make sense of all of that and helps us see it in a connected way where it's not just the Old Testament and New Testament, but it's Old and New Testament together interwoven into one another. So I'm really excited about this. And I'm entitled it Returning Home because when we open the Bible on page one, we see God placing humans, the first humans, Adam and Eve, into a place. That was our first home, right? And through our series of unfortunate events, we had to leave that home. But ever since that time, from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture, God has been on a mission to return us back home. And even now, even now, God is still on that mission. Even right today, God is still on a mission to bring you and I back home, whatever that means. And that's what I want to share with you today. So over this four-part series, and I encourage you to stay with me throughout the series, um, because they're all kind of interconnected. It all builds up to something, okay? Um, but today, we're going to start at the very beginning. We're going to start in Eden. Eden. So if you can, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. It's also on the screen, I believe. But it would be great if you can turn with me in Genesis chapter 2. I want to show you what our first home was like. What our first home was like. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8 to 17. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs alongside the east, of, east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and took him and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Let us pray together. Oh Lord, this time is yours. This people are yours. And so Lord, I pray that you build your church. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is humanity's first home, Eden. Eden. And there's a couple of things I want to highlight to you about Eden, because I don't know, uh, for the longest time, I had this very basic, simple knowledge of Eden. I actually thought Eden was the entire world. It's actually not how it's described in Genesis chapter 2. Right, so, you get to marvel at my fantastic artistic skills today. Okay, so, we see here that there is Eden. Okay, 
not geographically accurate, but um, this is the region of Eden. Outside of this is the rest of the world. Rest of the world, okay? Eden is this localized part in the world, okay? It's not everything, it's just one part of the world. Eden. Okay. And in Eden, God plants a garden in the east. So one of the things that I also misunderstood was that I thought the Garden of Eden was the entire region. No, no, no. God, within Eden, God then planted a garden in the eastern region of Eden. Here's the garden, right? Okay, so this is the garden and there was a river, as we read, right? There was a river flowing from somewhere in Eden and it flowed into the garden and split off into four, four rivers that we read about. And flowed throughout the garden, bringing life and nourishment to the garden, all the plants there, all the trees, and to the surrounding region, okay? We read then that in the middle of the garden were two trees. Right? And depending on your translation, it will say in the midst of the garden or in the middle of the garden. I think the better translation is in the middle. The Hebrew word used to describe the location of the trees, I think is best translated as in the middle of. So in the very center of this garden, we have no idea how large it was, but in the very center of this garden were two trees. Okay? Tree of knowledge and of good and evil and the tree of life. So you get the sense here that humans had to specifically make a journey to go and eat from these two trees, right? You can imagine humans were placed somewhere in the garden. Right? Humans placed somewhere in the garden and God said, you can eat from any tree. When they'll look, be looking around and go, I can eat from any tree, except from the no tree of knowledge of good and evil, at the very center of the garden. I have no idea where that is, but at the very center, if I journey there, I'm gonna see two trees. I'm gonna see the tree of life, and I'm gonna see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the very beginning of the story, this is our home, okay? This is our home. So how would you describe Eden? How would you describe our first home? I think a good description would be it was paradise. It was paradise. Whatever image comes across in your mind is probably better than that, right? In fact, in the Greek, the Greek word used for Eden is paradise. It's a paradise. It was a paradise brimming with life. There were it was nice to look at, trees good, pleasing to the eye, and it was filled with nourishment, life for us, good for food. Right? It was a place brimming, flourishing, abundant life was in our first home. This was our first home. And in this home, this is where we met with God. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, it says, then the man and wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This was the place. In this garden, God would meet and be with and fellowship with and interact with his creation, his people. I think this is the more over and above 
the description of Eden, where that is a luscious garden paradise filled with life, you know, flowing rivers, waterfalls, beautiful trees. Over and above all that, the highlight of our first home was that this is where God was. Home is where God is. That's what we see in the Bible, okay? Our first home is where God was. It's where humanity and God could interact freely, openly, intimately, okay? This is where God met and dwelled with his people. And interestingly, and we're going to come back to this, interestingly, even at the very beginning, humans were placed with a choice. There were two paths, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but we'll get to that in a moment. So what was the role for humans to play at our first home? What was our role? What did we have to do in this garden? Well, there's two passages I want to bring you to to explain this. The first is Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 says, the Lord God took the man and put him. That word put him literally translates to cause to rest. He caused man to rest in the garden. Isn't that amazing? That from the very beginning, God wanted us to rest at home. God wants us to rest. But listen to what he says next, right? He caused man to rest, and then he put him to work. He put him to work, to work it and to take care of it. See, from the very beginning, work and rest were not contradictory. They were not in conflict. In fact, they were connected. Your work was meant to be restful. While you rested, you were meant to be working, right? They were meant to be connected. Work wasn't meant to be tiring, toilsome. It was meant to be uplifting, life-generating, and I'll explain why in a moment. But God intended for us to be at work, keep our hands busy, and that rest. But this is how we were meant to do it. This is how we're meant to do it. Our relationship with God was like this. God was the creator, humans were the cultivator. Human, God created, humans cultivated. Uh, God created the Garden of Eden. He planted the trees. He produced the beauty. He produced the fruit. All humans were meant to do was tend to it, preserve it, continue it, cultivate it, just keep it going. Humans were not responsible for how good the fruit tasted. They were not responsible for that. Humans were not responsible for how beautiful the garden was. That was not their responsibility. All they were called to do was just work and take care of what God had already started. Okay? Now, these two responsibilities that we see here of to work and take care of are actually the same words or same responsibilities given to the Israelite priests, right? The Israelite priests were um, given the responsibility to work or to serve, same word, serve in the temple and tabernacle, to stand in the gap, to act as intermediaries between the natural and divine. So if people wanted to meet with God, they would come through the priest, they were to stand in the gap. They were also called to guard or take care of or I think a good word is preserve God's will. So the priests in Israel were, um, were called to teach the people 
God's laws and to make sure they kept it, observed it. They were called to make sure that God's ways, God's will, God's laws, God's way of life was preserved. And we see the same thing here. Adam and Eve were called to be priests in the garden, to work and take care of what God was doing. God created, they were just, me, they were just responsible for preserving what God was already doing. And this is why it was restful work. This is why it was rest, restful work, because they weren't responsible for creation. They weren't even responsible for the results or the outcome. All they needed to do was see, okay, what is God doing? What has God planted? Okay, I'm going to take care of that. What is God doing over here? Okay, I'm going to do that. I'm going to work and take care of what God is already doing. And I think that's the same today. We are called to be divine human partners with God. The divine human partnership is not that we have to generate all this fruit. No, no, no. We just have to simply see what God is doing and then go to there and preserve and continue and cultivate what God has already been doing. Adam and Eve were called to be priests in the Garden of Eden. It reminds me of, um, well, it might not be the best analogy, but um, Adara, my two-year-old, is going through this stage where she is wanting to exert her independence over everything in her life. And um, one of the things that she really is adamant about doing is zipping up her jacket, right? Or she has a sleep suit and she really wants to slip, zip up her sleep suit. But I, I think we take this for granted, but do you know how difficult putting in a zip, zipper is for a two-year-old, right? It's incredibly, it's a, it's a dexterous activity, right? You need precision to put that little thing into its compartment and then start zipping it up, right? And so she can't do it, right? She, as try as she might, she would start getting annoyed and frustrated and daddy help, you know? And so, so what I have to do is I will usually put the zipper in and start zipping it up a little bit and then go, okay, honey, now you can continue it. Okay, now, honey, now you can do it for yourself. See, I had started something. All she needed to do was continue it. Does it take effort? Does it take, you know, work on her, on, on her part? Yes, absolutely. She needs to, you know, try and do it herself and all that stuff and learn how to zip it up. But the hard part was already done. Getting it into the thing and starting zipping it up, I did that. All she needed to do was continue what I had already started. I know not the best illustration, but... You know, it's what came to mind. Um, that this is kind of how God and us interact. Does He need us to do anything in this world? Like, do I, do I need my daughter to zip up her jacket? No, I don't need her at all. In fact, it would be far easier and far more efficient if I did it myself. Okay? But she needs to get involved. Right? She wants to get involved, but also I want her to get involved too. I want her to, to, to learn these skills. I want to get involved in what I'm doing. And it's kind of with God. It's far more efficient and effective and quicker if God just did and executed His will on earth by Himself. Far quicker, far less complications. But that's not how He works. There's a divine human partnership that we see at the very beginning of the story that God wants to involve us. He wants to include us. And how he does it is, he starts something and then he goes, okay, 
come alongside my child, you continue what I start. That's how it works. And that's why it's kind of restful because we're not responsible for the outcome because God's right there with us all the way. At one moment, he could zip that jacket up. But he wants us involved. He wants us involved. We're not responsible for the outcome. God's got the outcome in control. But we just need to cultivate and preserve what he, continue what he's doing. We're priests. The second thing we see is we're kings. We're kings. We're meant to be kings. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God blesses the humans and gives them this charge. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So we're called to subdue. We're called to rule. This is royal language. We were called to be kings and queens out of our home. In the Garden of Eden, we were called to be, to, to rule with God, to be His co-rulers, executing His will and reign over creation to see it flourish and bloom and spread across the world. I think Eden was simply the beginning. The Garden was simply the beginning of God's reign over the world. In the, in the sense that He planted this beautiful garden, this paradise of life in this small little location. But I don't think his intent was to remain there. His intent was for us to come alongside him and reign over creation so that this garden, this beautiful garden, spread across the entire world and filled it. That was his intent, for us being rulers with him. Just as Israelite kings, when, when um, a good king reigned, the nation prospered, the land flourished, things were great, right? But when there was a bad king, things went downhill. There was oppression, there was um, wars, and there was famine, right? When there's good kings, the land flourishes, things go well. When there's bad kings, things go badly. And so it was with us. He intended us for to rule with him so that his reign and his rule could be established on earth so that the garden of paradise could expand across the world. We are still called to be his rulers and we're still called to be his, his, his kings and queens on this earth. And I wonder how good a job we've done so far. But that was the intent from the very start, for us to be priests and kings. So you put them together, what were we meant to be? We were meant to be royal priests. Royal priests. And you see that throughout the entire storyline of the Bible, right? You see Israel being called a kingdom of priests. You see Peter calling the church, you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. Where did he get that idea from that we are royal priests? From Eden. From the very start. This was God's intention. This was God's intention for us to be royal priests, preserving what he was doing on earth and ruling with him. So, what was our first home like? It was a paradise brimming with beauty that we were called to work alongside God to expand and preserve. That was our first home. So how does that affect us today? Okay, so we've gone through all that. Okay, how does that affect you today? Well, in order to answer that, I need to bring in Jesus. When I was preparing the series and trying to plan it out, I thought maybe I'll do one whole session on Jesus. But you know, I can't talk about anything without bringing in Jesus. So I thought, I'll just integrate Jesus in every single message. <laughs> because Jesus changes everything. 
in Jesus, and we are in an era where Jesus has, has, has already come. He's already, he's already come and, and been with us. And now we live post his incarnation. So what does that mean? Because Jesus, when Jesus came, he wanted to bring us back home. Part of his mission was this, was returning us back to the Garden of Eden. Let me explain how. In John chapter 6, verse 35, what does he say? He says, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Then in John 15, verse 1, he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Now, with just those two verses, okay, does that ring any bells? Does that, any, does that with just what we just talked about, do you see any similarities here? What do you think Jesus is trying to, trying to do here? I am, the true, I, am, I am the true tree that if you are connected to me, you will have everlasting life. If you eat from me, you will have true life. What does that sound like? The tree of life, right? Jesus is saying here, he's telling the people, I am the tree of life. If you eat from me, if you come to me, you will experience the everlasting life that was intended for you all along. If you follow me, if you believe in me, if you follow my way of living, I will show you what it means to truly live. I will show you what it means to live back in paradise. Remember, the tree of life stood in the center of the garden. And if Jesus is the tree of life, or at least the physical embodiment of the tree of life, well then he is paving a way, creating a pathway back into our first home. And that is incredible. But what does this life look like? When he says, or when we talk about the tree of life, what does it mean to have this life in Christ? What does it mean to eat of or be connected to the tree of life? This is the question that I've been wrestling with the most this week. What does it mean to have this life? The simple answer is that you will never die. You'll never die, right? But I think that is, as amazing as that is, and honestly, that should be enough for us. That should be like, wow, we will never die, that's amazing. But what does that actually mean? Now, now, what does it actually mean that we will have life and life to the full? John 10.10 says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Have, it, have, have life and have it abundantly. As we said, right, in the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. There were two trees that re represented two ways of living, okay? And what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 10, 10 is he's recalling back the decision that was placed before Adam and Eve in the garden. And he's going, today, you are faced with the same decision. There's a choice set before you. There's a tree of life and there's a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, what did these trees do for Adam and Eve? Okay, so these two trees represented this, this, 
these two paths. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 to 17, and the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Very beginning. Two paths, two trees. One path leads to life, one path leads to death. Very, very clear. Interestingly though, from at the very beginning, the path to obedience was very wide. The path of obedience was very wide. Eat from any tree. Total freedom. Except, just don't eat from this tree. It was very easy to obey God. Very hard to disobey Him. Okay? That was very interesting. Now, there's two paths. Now, when in chapter 3 of Genesis, we see an interaction between a serpent and Eve. A very interesting interaction. And the conversation pretty much went, the serpent told Eve, you're not really going to die. You know that, right? If you eat from the tree of knowledge of evil, what you're going to actually experience is you're going to experience divinity. You're going to ascend to godhood, right? Your eyes are going to be open, and you're going to be like God. Now, was he lying? He was being deceitful, absolutely, 100%. But he wasn't entirely wrong because when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge and evil, they, did, they didn't drop dead immediately. And they did, in fact, gain uh, the, the divine ability to become judge and determiner of what is right and wrong. See, at the very beginning, when Adam and Eve were first created, they were created morally innocent. What I mean is they, they didn't know right from wrong. They, they had to, they were totally dependent on their parent, like a child, to, de- to tell them and teach them what was right and wrong. That's what God was doing in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. He was saying, okay, so this is right and this is wrong. This is good and this is bad. Right? This is how they were. The, the, role, and the role of who determines right and wrong was God's alone. That was God's. When they chose to eat from the tree of life, Adam and Eve were saying, I want that role for myself. I want to determine what is good. I want to determine what is bad. I want to determine for myself what is a good life and what is a bad life. What is right living and what is wrong living. And what do you see happening? What do you see happening? One of the first judgment calls humans made after they gained this divine ability to become judge of good and bad was Genesis chapter 3 verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. What do you see was the first judgment? We're naked, and this is bad. The first thing, the first result of them becoming judge of good and bad was shame. Was shame. Who told you that you were naked? And who, more importantly, told you that being naked was a bad thing? God didn't tell them. But once we took control of our fate, once we became judge and determiner of right and wrong, of good and bad, suddenly we get to decide you are bad. No, this person is good. This activity is bad. This person is good. We get to determine. We get to call things bad and good. We get to be, we have moral autonomy now. And what has that produced? 
division, conflict, business, rivalry, dissension among families, among nations, wars, barbarism of unfathomable levels, even good things like advances in technology and, and increases in knowledge have been marred and distorted by our own abuse of those things. What good has come from us eating from the tree of life and determining for ourselves good and bad, right and wrong, of saying, I want to live this way and this way is good. No, this way is bad. What good has come from that? Nothing. Nothing. And because we chose that life, God could not bear for us to live eternity in that state. And that is why we ended up being removed from the garden, removed from access to the tree of life. Why? Because we could not possibly live in this fallen state where God was no longer the one who taught us this is right living and this is wrong living. So you can see today, just like Adam and Eve, we are all faced with the same choice. We are faced with two paths to life, the path of life and the path of death. But the tricky part of this decision is that the path of, that leads to life asks you to die to yourself. And the path that leads to death asks you to live for yourself. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23 to 25, then he said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life they're going to lose it. But whoever loses their life for me, they're the ones that are going to save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? The path of life, choosing to eat from the tree of life today means that you have to die to yourself so that Christ can live through you and the Spirit of Christ can flow through the cracks of brokenness in you to bring life and healing to those around you. And I think this is what it means to be royal priests in God's garden. When we come to Christ and when Christ came, what he was trying to do was not only create a pathway back to our first home in Eden and bring us back into contact with God so that we could have free access to God and be in his presence, but he also wanted to redeem us to take back our mantle as royal priests. He wanted to redeem you and I to be what we were always meant to be. Royal priests. What do kings do? They don't rule over others. They serve. Remember, the highest in the kingdom of God are those who serve the most. What did our king do? What, did you, what do you see King Jesus doing? He humbled himself so that others could be honored and laid down his life so that others could live. Part of being a royal priest, a co-ruler with Christ, and taking back that mantle that is ours, is to serve one another, to be the lowest, to humble yourself so that others can be elevated, so that others can be honored. When you eat from the tree of life, he is redeeming us back as his co-rulers. And he asks us to first lay down our crowns so that others may pick up theirs. It is by our submission and service to him 
and to others that Christ's paradise of life and flourishing and richness blooms and spreads. We are called again to be kings so that paradise can once again spread across the earth. We are also redeemed to be priests, priests interceding on behalf of creation, seeing God's will implemented on earth as it is in heaven and preserving what he has started. So what does that mean? It means for us to be on the lookout for what God is doing around us and getting involved there. It, and we can only do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can only do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. It says in John chapter 7, verse 37 39, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the Spirit. Just as the garden, right? just as the garden had a river that flowed through it, that broke out and watered the garden, bringing bring life and nourishment to the garden. And it, in fact, spread to the surrounding regions to water those areas as well. So to we have a, a river running through each and every one of us, bringing life and healing to those around us. Even now, this river is trying to cut channels in our communities to bring healing, to bring restoration. Even now, he's trying to make carve canals in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our universities, in our schools, in our workplaces, to bring nourishment and life and revitalization. But how does he do it? Through us. Through us. Through us who are now part of this ecosystem of the tree of life. Us who are now restored to be priests in the garden, who should be and ideally should be filled with the Spirit, filled with this river, filled with the waters of the Spirit, flowing where He is going, allowing Him to direct and inspire us and to lead us where there's, where there's needs of healing, where there's needs for people to be set free, where there's a word of encouragement that needs to be spoken, where there's a prayer that needs to be uttered. But it's only possible if we actually filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit. Because it's only this river that, breathes, that gives life. It's only this river that flows within us that gives life. You have no life within you. There's no, nothing that you can give people. But when this river flows, when this river flows through you, paradise is reborn. Trees start sprouting again. Beauty starts forming. People start flourishing around you. Communities are healed. Families are restored. When we are connected to what God is doing, when we allow that river to flow from within us. I believe the, the, the Garden of Eden that we see and that we read about in Genesis is simply symbolic, a symbolic image of what the church should be like. With Christ as our center and the river of life flowing from within and among us. And it starts right here. 
It starts right here. That is why, that is why there are so many instructions and encouragements for us to gather and come together and meet together so that we can spur one another to a love and good deeds. What is that? It is allowing the river to flow to water each and every one of us. Whenever we gather, whenever we gather, is there, are we preserving and continuing what God is doing in each and every one of our lives? God is starting things in your life. God has planted seeds in each of our lives. God is doing things in our lives. And just like the Garden of Eden, He's placed people there royal priests, to cultivate what he has started. And who is that today? That's you and I. That's you and I. We are responsible for cultivating what God is doing in that person sitting next to you. Yes, God is the source of life. Yes, he's the one that generates the fruit. But we are the ones that are called to encourage, water, weed, fertilize what God is doing. And that means that every time we gather together, there should be words of encouragement spoken. There should be people teaching of the word so that, there is, um, so that people are directed to what he says life looks like. There should be challenges made to one another. Hey, we should be living according to what Christ desires us to live. There should be prayer for one another to support and encourage and strengthen one another. Is that happening? Is that happening every time we gather? I'm not talk, just talking about now. I'm not just talking about now. I'm talking about when we meet in our connect groups, when we gather for lunch, or when we just meet up during the week. Whenever we gather, whenever believers gather, it's an opportunity for God's beautiful creation and paradise to be cultivated a little bit more. So that each and every one of us blooms and experiences home. Home is where God is. Home is where this beautiful paradise of life blooms. That is each and every one of us. Each and every one of us. You are meant to be part of this paradise of life. Because you are connected to the tree of life. But I know, the reality is, sometimes you are looking at me and feeling, I do not feel like a paradise right now. I totally get that. And you know who can help you with that? We can. We're meant to. That's why there's no such thing as a lone Christian. Christians cannot survive alone. You are not meant to. It's like saying having a tree outside in the wilderness. It's very difficult for that tree to survive. It needs to be connected to the ecosystem of life where there's a river flowing, where there's, there's life blooming, where there's other trees and plants to, to help grow that, per, that, that plant. So it is with us. We need to be connected with one another. And I get that in this era that we're living in, it is very tempting and easy and even it might even make sense, more sense for us to stay at arm's length. Even when we meet, there can be a sense of distance and detachment where, you know, I'm going to let you in a little bit 
and not anymore. And I, I totally get that. That is totally normal. But can I encourage and challenge us that if we truly want to experience home, this garden paradise again, which is what Christ came to restore in, our, in each and every one in, on the world, well then the church is that place where it starts. Whenever someone enters a community of believers, they're meant to experience a little slice of home. They're meant to feel there's something about this gathering that feels good, that feels different, that feels refreshing. I feel that I'm coming alive again. Is that happening with us? And now, I think there's two things that we need to be aware of here. Um, I think, one, some of us, we, this is very difficult for us to do this if we have eaten from the tree of life, but we still salivate for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You've eaten and tasted life, but then you still like to have little tastes and bites of, of your own way, of your own way of living. You go, yep, I believe in God, but I still want to decide what is good. I still want to decide how I want to live. Well then, it's very difficult for you to be a conduit of God's grace and healing to those around you when you claim to be connected to life, but really, you reek of death. It is very difficult for the spirit of life to flow through you if you keep damning it up with the fruit of knowledge of good and evil, with your own ways, with your own way of living. If you want to be that source, and I think many of us would go, if I gave you a choice, hey, do you want life or death? You go, of course, life. Okay, well then, what you need to do is follow God's way, because that is what it was like from the very beginning. How do you know God's way? The Bible. That's not reductionistic. I'm, I'm not being simplistic here. Scripture reveals to us through the power of the Holy Spirit who brings revelation to us. He reveals to us the ways of God through Scripture. He brings it to life to bring transformation to us so that new life is birthed within us. So that this paradise is tended in our hearts so that we can be a blessing to others. But it takes us meditating and abiding in Christ and in His Word in order to know His way of living. The other thing that can get in the way is, if I can put it this way, meaningless gatherings. Meaningless gatherings. What I mean is, when we gather together, it's no different from just a group of friends gathering together. Sure, you pray for the meal. Sure, you mention God every now and then. Like, thank God for this day. But is there any real, actual encouragement happening? Is there any real spurring one another towards loving good deeds? Is there any real service to one another? And I'm not accusing everyone here of that, okay? I know that there are people here who 
when you gather, there are groups that when you gather, it is incredible. There is life and healing and restoration. There are actually felt needs being met. You are actually, there's actual teaching of the Word of God and you're actually going, okay, how can I live this out in my week? And you're actually encouraging and challenging one another to do that. I know there are those, and I've been the recipient of this, that throughout the week, you are on the lookout how to be generous and how to be hospitable to fellow believers and people around you. I mean, when I gave, when, when, when we, um, when, when my second born was, was just born, um, we con- our entire family contracted COVID. And it was such a difficult time. And quite a few people here reached out and went, how can we help you? How can we help you in practical ways? Obviously, we can't help carry your child because he has COVID, but what can we do? What else can we do? And people dropped off food, people dropped off drinks, that kind of stuff. Man, that is you being a source of life to those around you. I know this is happening. I know this is happening even today. There are those of you who are going to get out there and you're going to start conversations with people and you're on the lookout for how can I encourage this person? How can I pray for this person? How can I minister to this person? You may not be a leader. You may not be an altar minister. You may not be even a pastor. But you're on the lookout for how can I bless someone today? I know you are there. I know it is happening. I see it. I experience it. But there are, it's not everyone. Not everyone is like it, like that. There's some who come to a gathering, maybe like this, and that's not your mind space at all. And I get, for some of you, it's really difficult just to even be here today. I get it. Yeah, absolutely. We all have our seasons. But can I encourage and maybe just challenge us all that our role, if we truly do, and are serious about seeing and experiencing home again, paradise, a little slice of Eden, well then, we can experience it here. We can, we can, and we should. But it involves each and every one of us. Each and every one of us. Being that medium through which God can use and flow through. And so today, there's gonna be ministry time. I mean, if people want it. And there are gonna be people that are praying for people, pastors that are praying, and altar ministers, gems team that are praying. But there are gonna be a whole bunch of people that one, actually one prayer, that actually need someone to talk to, that will not come down. And it's totally fine, no judgment there. But wouldn't it be awesome if every single person that needed prayer, that needed support, got it every time they came to church, every time they attended a connect group? Wouldn't it be awesome if that happened? Guaranteed. And it is possible because there are a thousand royal priests sitting right here today. You don't need to be a leader to pray for someone. A part, just having a role, as a title as a pastor doesn't mean that you are the sole interceder for people. I am not the only king here. I'm not the only priest standing before God and going, God, what do you want to say to your people? No, every single one of us is that. Every single one. And that's what Christ came to do to elevate us all. Not to have just one person being that one intermediary. Not just one person establishing his role on earth. Every single one of us doing that. 
every single day. Can you imagine when the church actually takes back their mantle as royal priests, what would happen? How would earth look like? Paradise on earth. Paradise on earth. When the church truly functions as the church, this earth and this world will blossom and bloom. Our workplaces will never be the same. Our families will be restored and there'll be healing. Our, can you imagine communities, whole neighborhoods with this river of life flowing through it? And they have no choice but to experience it because you're there. You're saturating in prayer. You're loving on them every single day. Can you imagine that? That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to be. And I believe we can start today. So church, I invite you to stand with me. And I'm going to give us an opportunity to respond. As we do that, let us pray. Oh Lord, help us to see what you see. You have called us your bride, your beautiful bride. And truly, it is beautiful. Oh, as beautiful as Eden itself. Oh Lord, if only we, we grasped and took back our role and really lived out our, this mandate as, as your co-ruler as your priest, implementing your will on earth. Oh Lord, would we not see paradise on earth flourish? Oh God, help us. Oh Lord, help us. Purify your church, oh Lord. Oh Lord, may your spirit come and convict us. May your spirit come and flow from within and fill us up and overflow through. Oh, each and every one of us can be a source of healing and restoration and freedom to those around us. May that be so. In Jesus' name, amen.